we do welcome you if you're a believer in the UK and the USA where most of our listeners are we welcome you of course and I mentioned a few other unusual countries last night where there's the twos and the threes who, who tune in from time to time and so I would I would just say uh, a special welcome today to listeners in Canada and those in the Bahamas and also those few those tiny few in Pakistan we welcome you heartily and we hope God blesses you today well we're going to move on to <clears throat> going to move on to our next Bible reading on which the sermon is based and that is from Mark 15 so we did the first 15 verses last week and this week verses 16 to 28 we're on Mark 15 verses 16 to 28 goes as follows <clears throat> and the soldiers led him Jesus obviously away led him away into the hall called Praetorium and they called together the whole band and they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him hail king of the Jews and they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they brought him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine, mingled with myrrh but he received it not and when they had crucified him they parted his garments casting lots upon them what every man should take and it was the third hour and they crucified him and the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews and with him they crucified two thieves, the one on his right hand and the other on his left. And the scriptures and the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, And he was numbered with the transgressors. So we are looking today at this theme of a crucified king. So we come to the climax of Mark's Gospel. We come to the point where the Son of God is to be hanged on a tree. We've seen Jesus be arrested. He suffered a mockery of a trial. His conviction and the death sentence that it, that it carried wasn't made through any evidence. It was a hateful and envious Jewish religious elite. They determined to see this man dead at any cost. And the Roman authority, the one in charge, Pilate, well, he thought only of what was the best move uh, politically. What we read, Jesus suffering at the hands of the soldiers, isn't a, obviously, you can tell it's not a measured 
dispensing of a court sentence, but an act of mass bullying and violence. Now, these soldiers had witnessed and carried out such extreme violence in their military careers, they'd effectively become uh, sociopathic. All what they're doing to Jesus Christ is just for fun. Now, showing cruelty to another human being is, is one thing, but the soldiers in charge of Jesus have gone to find all their friends so they can join in too. There are dozens, perhaps even scores of soldiers. Jesus is flogged. Again, there are no regulations about the degree of beating or flogging to be inflicted. The soldiers could do whatever they liked. I'm inclined to support the idea of a return to corporal punishment in the UK. Uh, some Christians would disagree. I know it's not without its problems, but on balance I think it would be good for society. But the infliction of the punishment, it would have to be strictly regulated and controlled. There'd need to be medical people on standby to give help if necessary. But when these Romans carried out a flogging, it wasn't unusual for victims to die. They died from the flogging even before leaving for their final journey to their execution. On top of the physical cruelty these these dished out, they wanted to add mockery. And so we see them model Jesus in a grotesque form of a king. They put a robe on him. It was possibly one belonging to one of the soldiers. Instead of a, a royal scepter, he's handed a, a reed to hold. And then the mock-up continues then uh, by placing on his head not a laurel crown like their emperor wore, but one they've strung together from a thorn bush. And we hear the loud cries as they offer up their mock worship and adoration. Instead of hail Caesar, they shall hail king of the Jews. This is a gross picture and it's meant to be. But we who belong to God, we make our observations with heavenly vision. We can see the bigger picture. They, they may have arranged this scene of ridicule, but we see something glorious. We see a real king. We understand he is worthy above all others to wear the garments of the king. We understand he holds the scepter of righteousness, the property of the King of Kings. And we understand his destiny. It's to be seated once again at the right hand of his father, wearing a crown, the crown of the King of all nations. So we, you can see we have this great contrast. If you've been with us through the whole journey through Mark, you will have seen this a lot. So human eyes now see a pathetic figure, a person of no consequence, who is just hours away from his death. We see the Son of Man. We see the King. We see the Saviour of the world. And we have this awareness that everything leading up to this point, everything that will come after it, is all the working out of God's wise purposes. 
do you remember in Revelation where we, we saw a similar contrast? There was a there was a there was this picture of a scroll, uh, a book if you like, and it had a seal on it. And people wanted to know what was in the book, but tragically, no one was found worthy to open the seal. But then there was someone after all. It was none other than Jesus Christ. And there he's called both the Lamb of God and the Lion of Judah. Now, the Lamb is a defenceless creature, whereas the Lion is top of the food chain. It's showing us again the nature of this supreme king uh, as being both ruler of all, but one who was willing to make himself vulnerable and be slaughtered for his subjects. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, I, I did um, a computer animated virtual tour of ancient Jerusalem and I pointed out in one corner a Roman fortress and uh, at the at the corner of, of the, the temple area and tradition holds this is where Jesus was maltreated before being led away to Calvary uh, on this basis. Christians have made an educated guess as to the route Jesus would have taken from there to his execution and then they've called the, the, the route the Via Dolorosa which means the way of sadness or the way of sorrows and each year Christian pilgrims uh, visiting uh, Jerusalem they walk the route in remembrance of Jesus further research though has shown Jesus wasn't in the Antonia fortress but rather in Herod's palace it's not very important I, I know but maybe they should have a rethink about that route the reason um, that the Romans made the prisoners do this walk of shame um, to, to the place of execution was to intimidate the population it was just to add uh, a little bit of fear uh, in them and depending on the, the type of, of, of crucifixion, there were, there were different types, prisoners would be forced to carry through the streets uh, a crossbar. If they were hung on a crossbar, they'd carry that through the streets. The crossbar was what they would be hung upon. Now, so w w we're not to think, uh, like in some, in some films and some images you see, you know, you've got Jesus hauling this, half a ton weight of you know a tree with a crossbar on it a giant cross and he's dragging that through the streets well no we're not to think that but even the bit he was asked to carry it was proving so difficult they roped in a member of the public to um, help him out and it's possible you know Jesus had lost um a significant amount of blood through his flogging to make him weak and so we see him arrive at his destination in verse uh, 22 we call it uh, Golgotha the Aramaic word is similar it's like Golgotha or something meaning skull as we know um, we also refer to the place as Calvary now Calvary comes from a Latin word and that means scalp or bald head. So it, each of the words is described in something to do with, with the head, isn't it? Or the, the top of the head. 
but we, we we can't be sure what the name refers to. Now some have looked, some have looked for a feature in the rocks, you know, stared at the rocks for, and they've seen what looks like a human skull. But alternatively, because the image of a skull is used to symbolise death, just think of the danger signs we see, you know, with a, a skull and a crossbone saying danger. It's used to symbolise death, so it could just mean, you know, Golgotha could just mean the place of death. But it hasn't stopped some people looking for a face in the rocks. And so, years ago, some biblical researcher or archaeologist announced he'd found what he believed was the location of Golgotha. It's in a rock feature. And it looks a tiny bit like a face, but I mean, he, he could have been looking for something that wasn't meant to, be, you know, that actually didn't exist. He's looking for the wrong thing, and let's be honest, how how good is that as a, as a method? I mean, you know as well as I do, you can stare up right now at the clouds in the sky, and eventually you would see a, a face or a skull or something. It's just human imagination. So if you do go to Israel and the coach driver says, I'm taking you now to see uh, the famous Golgotha skull face in the rocks, remember it could be nothing. It could be just a product of someone's vivid imagination. Uh, I've seen the pictures and there's like two holes and something else that looks a little bit like eyes. But, you know, it's just, it's silly. It's like Roman Catholics, you know, seeing pictures of the Virgin Mary and the piece of toast. You know, it's just silly. If any of you have been to Israel and seen these things, I hope I'm not ruining your, your your memories. If you are interested, though, I think the best candidate that I've read about, the best candidate for the location of site, the site of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, it's the spot where there's a church now. A church stands on the spot, and that's uh, archaeology has, has shown. That's probably the most likely site. So if, you, if you've heard of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, then that's probably the site. But we weren't really meant to know. Crucifixion is often um, described as an invention of the Romans, and it wasn't. It had been around for a long time. The Romans just stole the idea, and they built on it, they expanded it. And during the siege of Jerusalem, for example, they crucified hundreds, if not thousands, of prisoners of war, people who tried to escape. And they got crucified outside the city wall. And the cruel imagination of the Roman soldiers allowed them to to put people to death in many different ways. So we're not to think that just by investigation we can discover how crucifixion occurred and how Jesus was crucified. Because it could have been in different ways. But we do know some things. We do know it was reserved for people who were not Roman citizens. We know that the point of it was just to be cruel. It was designed for its cruelty. We were saying in our midweek Bible study that people people hanged on crosses could take uh, days to, to die. And during that time, they'd suffer the heat of the day, freezing cold temperatures at night. They'd be dehydrated. They could die of um, maybe internal bleeding, heart failure, asphyxiation, and many others. We also know the victims were crucified naked. Now, the idea that this could have been the case with Jesus obviously disturbs 
Christians. So some have suggested that the Romans, that these vicious Romans, would have covered them up with a loincloth for the sake of the Jews, so, you know, for the sensibilities of the Jews. Well, I don't know. I leave that for you to decide whether you think that's a reasonable conclusion. Just out, just out of interest, there was there was an archaeological find a few years back uh, made in Jerusalem, and the remains of a guy who'd been crucified was found, and so by all this, you know, um, I don't know what the term is. It's some kind of um, like a forensic pathology thing, but it's it's just the specialists do it, like on on skeletal remains, don't they? Well, my wife will tell me the name of it later. She watches all these programmes. It's amazing what they're able to, to, to determine just from this pile of bones. They can, they can see marks on the bones. They can see all kinds of stuff. And they build up a picture. And they've been able to work out how this man died. Well, certain details of it. And so, the picture with him anyway, not necessarily with Jesus well, it was different from Jesus's. So there was a central stake set into the ground, usually, a, you know, like a tree, like a tree trunk, really. There was a, a, a crossbar which he was tied to; his hands were tied, and then that was hauled up with him and placed at the very top of this central stake. And I, it was interesting how the legs were positioned. The legs were not at the front, you know, crossed over like G, like the pictures you see of Jesus. The legs were were, were were bent a little bit, and the feet were placed on either side of the of the trunk. On either side, and then nails were put through the heel of each of the feet into the trunk. Um, so they, they they were were not able to support themselves on on their feet. That's just so cruel, isn't it? Well. We know with Jesus it was different because he had he he will have had those through his his um, ankles as well. I think it's 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 through the it's through the bones so that you know so that you can put a tiny bit of weight on it, but it'll it'll hurt like mad. Uh, we know with Jesus, therefore that that's where the nails would have went in his feet and the hands likewise would have gone through Jesus's wrist between these bones um, so that's, that's how we think the crucifixion of this man and, and of Jesus went we note in verse uh, 23 that he was offered this concoction of wine with myrrh mixed in now you, you've, you know myrrh it's, 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 um, it's like a, used as a perfume a posh perfume, you know, it was it was given as a gift, wasn't it, to Jesus? It was given as a gift when he was a, when he was a, a child, um, and uh, it's also used for anointing bodies, you know, people who've died. And but it, it's used for other things, and, that, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about these two two views. One view is that that a traditional view is that pious women would offer. Uh, this um, this mixture to people who were being crucified for pain relief 
so I, I don't know what the I haven't researched the effects of May and I know obviously alcohol uh, would help numb the pain and there's a there's a precedent in scripture for, for doing that because we find a piece of advice um, probably in the Proverbs I can't remember just now we find a piece of advice suggesting that we we give strong alcoholic drink to people who, who, are, who are on on the deathbed as as an analgesic as a pain reliever and and today obviously in the hospitals they will use morphine instead but then there's another view there's another view that's it's based on the writings of the Roman called it Pliny and if you you may have heard of him and Pliny was uh, in one of his writings said that wine mixed with myrrh was a delicacy it was it was it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a luxurious drink and so it could be that it was the Roman soldiers offering this to Jesus not for pain relief but as another element in their mockery of him you know the king deserves the best wine so it could have been that as well well I've spent um, I've spent half our time looking at all the, the details of this incident but, but the theme I just want to pick up on today is Jesus as a crucified king you've heard in the Bible the term king of kings king of kings well it's a it's a title of reverence and like um, majesty but it's used in the scriptures to describe um, other people as well we, we think we associate it with Jesus but it's, it, it can be used uh, as, a, as a reverential title for you know any, any king but when when we say obviously when we say Jesus is majestic it's understood that we mean the most majestic um, likewise when we describe him as king of kings we mean he's the ultimate king the one to whom all the kings and presidents of this world are duty bound to bow um, where are we up to well I'm going to start with first I'm going to look at some prophecies from the scriptures I'm going to look at some prophecies about the coming king and I want to look then about what Jesus claimed to be or how he reacted when this title of king was used um, was aimed at him and I want to also then look at some of the things other various people said about him whether in sincerity or mockery so first of all then we'll look at some prophecies so we're going to start with a prophecy from the prophet Micah Micah it's chapter 5 and verse 2 but thou Bethlehem Ephrathah though thou be little among the thousands of Judah yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old from everlasting not only does this announce the king of Israel is coming, but 
It also predicts the exact place, the exact place where he'd be born. Little old Bethlehem, not, not a grand city, but a fairly insignificant town. Here he's titled um, Ruler in Israel. Remember, the title Messiah means anointed king. We'll see a variety of titles, all describing the same office. Zechariah. Zechariah uh, chapter 9 and verse 9 makes this announcement. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass, a donkey. Your king is coming. He is the just one. He has salvation to dispense. So here Jesus is the king of Zion, the king of Jerusalem. You'll no doubt recognise that prophecy because we looked at its fulfilment a few weeks ago. Zechariah is declaring, really contrary to what we'd expect, that Zion's king would come to Jerusalem in a way very inappropriate for a king. He arrives on a donkey. And it's another example of the contrast they've been speaking about. He's, he's a king all right, but not like any king of this world. The third example is is um, is found in the Psalms. It's Psalm forty five and verse six. It's aimed at this coming Messiah. Thy throne, O God, is for ever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. As I said earlier, the royal scepter belonged to the king alone. Used as imagery, it describes that the rule of Jesus Christ similarly to what the throne represents. But the rightness, it says it's a right scepter, the rightness of his scepter describes the, the, the perfection or perfections of this rule. And we note also, interestingly, it addressed Jesus as the eternal God. He's the God of heaven. Let's have a look at some examples then of Jesus' claims. The royal status of Jesus was veiled when he was mocked by the Romans. It was veiled when he made his grand entry into Jerusalem uh, on that donkey. And it was in a sense veiled by Jesus himself. It simply wasn't part of his mission to go around declaring he was the king of Israel. If nothing else, this discretion avoided both uh, stirring the people up into this nationalistic frenzy, maybe causing a war, and it prevented Jesus being arrested prematurely. But it's not just about what Jesus said, but also what he didn't say. If we believe him to be a person of integrity, we'd know that he would reject any titles attributed to him if they were incorrect. If someone called him the king, he'd be duty-bound to correct them. So here's just one such example when his disciples say exactly that. You see what Jesus' reaction is. This is found in the 19th chapter of Luke, verse 37. 
And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, unto them I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Wow. So the Pharisees are requesting that he corrects them when they call him king. But Jesus sort of indicates he must be called king. And if his followers didn't acknowledge it, the inanimate creation would rise up in miraculous speech to declare what must be declared. In John's Gospel, we read this. In John 18, verse 36, it says, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence, not from here. His kingdom. Here he implies his regal status. He has a kingdom. And a kingdom has two elements. Subjects and the king who rules over them. The subjects are those he chooses to rule over in a very particular way. Now, yes, I know as sovereign of all, he rules all the people of the world, but he rules in a very special way. When he enters into a covenant with a group of people. I said earlier, Imperial Rome owned all kinds of ruled over all kinds of countries but then there were Roman citizens and they were a group within that larger number and of course they had special rights a special relationship to, to Caesar and so on and it's like that with the kingdom so we're saying that when God enters into a covenant with people with a group of people we then see a special kind of rule we said didn't we a few weeks ago about the uh, covenants God made with Abraham and Moses he was at one time the king of the Hebrews and afterwards the Jews but the disintegration of God's covenant with the Jews was the very means by which salvation was opened up for all the people of the world had it not been the case the only religion to ever reach the shores of Britain would be a dead Judaism and a whole load of pagan religions. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. His people don't live in one area. Least of all, the, the, that place in the Middle East. His kingdom is worldwide. Yet, the majority of people in this world don't belong to it. They're not in the kingdom. I said, I said before, didn't I? I indicated before that there are people. It, it's just difficult to shake this out of people. There are people who believe that they they live in Britain and they believe in God. They are Christians. I just it just um, it's frustrating, really. Most people in this country, almost all people in this country and most people in America 
and most people in the world as a whole. They're not believers. Most of them believe in God, but virtually none are believers on Jesus Christ. God has always had this group of people I mentioned earlier, his elect people that, that he calls out of the human race. He goes, he, he searches them out. He, 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 as it were, he finds them and then he, he converts them. And he's going to continue to do this till the very end of this world. And the number of people in God's king, kingdom obviously grows every day. The total number grows every day. People every day are getting saved. And therefore that number increases by one, by two, by three. So it's increasing. So you remember this. If you if you witness in your country, as we certainly are in Britain, what you think is a outwardly a decline in Christianity, that means that you know congregations are shrinking, church buildings are closing and being taken over by, you know, made into carpet warehouses or silly mosques or, or whatever it might be and so you naturally see that as a decline but you, you've got to think a bit more dare I say mathematically the total number of God's elect who are being brought into the kingdom is getting bigger day by day the number is growing the church uh, is growing so let me be clear about this. There is no such thing, really. There is no such thing about a decline in the church of God. What we see are fluctuations. We see the rate at which people enter God's kingdom. That may slow down to a tiny trickle. You might might end up in Britain with one person a year in the whole country being saved. But it's growing, nonetheless. The truth is people are being saved daily all over the world. So we've looked at some of the, we've looked at some of the, the prophecies before Jesus came. Then when Jesus came, what he said, the the sort of the titles he accepted, and we're going to look now at, you know, what other people said, what other people said about him. So let's go back to that that incident when he, Jesus was just a toddler. This is in Matthew two, the very beginning of Matthew two says. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Sorry, didn't change that slide. We have come to worship him. And if you met these, um, met these magi as they're called today, you, you probably think they were a strange bunch. We're not told much about them, but the wise men of those days would have had all kinds of interests. The the, the ones I've read about makes me think that these that these uh, these folk were. Um, remember, there wasn't three of them. There may have been dozens. There may have been you know ten. We don't know. But th those people, the magi, they were probably into everything from astrology to uh, alchemy. Um, from mathematics to magic and from you know everything from physics to philosophy they went into all kinds of stuff I can't tell you where they stood in the eyes of God but God chose them to receive a revelation he, he disclosed to them a, 
a very special king was about to arrive on the planet and he would be identified by a sign somewhere either in outer space or some object in our own atmosphere and it also sounds like they had access to the Hebrew scriptures and they, they confidently used this title King of the Jews so you see how Jesus was even worshipped albeit for a brief time when he was a child the next reference I'm going to use is from when Jesus was in his active ministry it's in the 49th verse of John's first chapter and Jesus had had an encounter with uh, Philip who called Nathaniel over to come and meet him so he could introduce uh, him to Jesus Nathaniel answered and saith unto Jesus Rabbi thou art the son of God thou art the king of Israel so Nathaniel had this sudden he had this sudden realisation that the miraculous knowledge Jesus had showed him uh, it, it proved Jesus was the Messiah the king of Israel who'd been the subject of prophecies you know for, for centuries uh, pe someone who people had looked forward to coming for like thousands of years last week we witnessed the sham trial of Jesus I said it was impossible to determine what was going on in the mind of Pilate but have you not seen by now the, how the confessions of Jesus as king they come from both sincere and insincere sources Pilate presented Jesus to the crowd as their king and regardless of his motives what was said was said behold your king we've already mentioned that the soldiers both in word and in deed were declaring Jesus as king and it's, a, it's an example of how even in their rebellion we find men confessing the truth about Jesus Christ and let's not forget this sign this sign we haven't mentioned that went up above Jesus' head the full title was probably this is Jesus of Nazareth the King of the Jews we may not know why it was written but we do know it was done ultimately by divine providence when we think about the Romans and the Jews wandering about mocking Jesus while he hung on a cross even we see it's evidence of what Jesus claimed to be what they said would make no sense unless Jesus had indeed claimed to be the King of Israel even if it was rarely you know declared by Jesus explicitly so it's come to this it's come to this the ministry of Jesus has come to a head there he was just hanging on this tree and the Bible says that everyone who hang hangs on a tree is cursed Jesus was cursed it was no accident of circumstance that he was surrounded by criminals who, who were also being crucified there's a reference there to an Old Testament prophecy you saw at the end which said the Messiah when he came he would be counted like one of the criminals he would be counted as a criminal he was numbered with the transgressors it says now had he accepted that narcotic drink 
of, of, of wine and meh, the pain would be lessened, uh, his senses would be dulled so that he could have suffered less psychologically too. But he was determined to be fully conscious through it all. For the punishment to count, it had to be felt. Had his suffering been lessened in any way, the justice of God would not have been carried out. And brethren, had God's wrath not been fully appeased through the suffering of his son, you and I would have to go to that lake of fire after all. He needed to experience the suffering in all its fullness. And I'm inclined to say, being conscious, he was also fully aware of the identities of every person he was dying for. Of all the contrasts that we've mentioned today and in former weeks, this one of the King of Kings suffering a humiliating death has to be the greatest. The ultimate king was the ultimate servant. This is truly unique. And in the next week or two, we're going to see the necessary events which take place after the atonement is completed. A resurrection from the dead and an ascension into heaven. Hebrews 1 and 3 says, Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. There he sits right now. He's reclaimed his rightful place as king of kings of kings but those few decades of condescension when he came to earth were essential for the salvation of mankind in the great substitution he showed himself fully willing to suffer an unimaginable death to save his people forever and he rules now on high to, to save and to, to act as the heavenly mediator for those he does save. All who come to him in faith, repenting of their sins, receive forgiveness and eternal life. And no man or woman, no angel or demon can pluck that person out of God's hand. I wonder whether today will remind you of an incident a while back. James and John had requested they be allowed to sit on the right hand and on the left hand of Jesus in his glory. Today we see a shocking image that will perhaps have had a shocking effect on the disciples too. You want a glimpse? of what it means to be on the left and the right side of Jesus then visualise Calvary believe it look following Jesus walking by his side it's not a Sunday school picnic the true disciple will experience suffering it's not that they'll necessarily be crucified or killed in any way for Jesus sake but they're expected to have such a level of commitment that they not deny Jesus in order to escape a terrible fate like that. 
Galatians 2 and 20 says, Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. As if he was crucified next to him. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We've been, in a sense, crucified along with Christ. We have, in a sense anyway, died with him. And we have, in a sense, risen from the dead and ascended on high with him. And it's our pleasant duty to spend our Christian lives leaning on Christ and obeying him. We are to daily mortify, crucify our sinful passions. We're to treat sin as our greatest enemy, one who has to be sought out and killed without mercy. The joyful Christian life, it's not found through having a close relationship with God but being lazy and thinking that faith is enough. True joy is to be found in both reliance on God and great efforts to live in a way which honours him. For if ye live after the flesh ye shall die but if ye through the spirit do mortify crucify kill the deeds of the body ye shall live amen thank you all thank you so much for uh, joining with us today and i hope through the the word read the word preached the word sung you may have been uh, challenged today uh, blessed, edified whatever it is the Lord sees fit for you today again if you are someone who's tuned in and wants to know more just get in touch with me privately the email address is there on the left and get in touch and um, please you know, uh, ask whatever questions you like no question is stupid and your inquiries could be a turning point that will have eternal consequences. So I pray you would do that. Don't allow thoughts of looking silly in front of your friends put you off. How tragic that would be. Some of you I will see at the Zoom meeting on Wednesday. To the rest of you, God bless you for the week ahead. May the Lord really be with you in a most day powerful way. Bye for now.